title of this message is The Holiness of God and His Power. The fall of the first Adam has made it so that when men stand before God, guilt and corruption are two of the most prodigious and diminishing characteristics he possesses. It is by the guilt of the sins that man constantly commit that he becomes a disgrace to the justice of God. And by the power of the sin that dwells in him, he becomes abominable to the holiness of God. God is holy and he is sovereign. In Isaiah 45, 6 through 7, God said this, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. There are two things here that God wants us to know concerning his sovereignty. The first thing is that he is God alone and there is no other besides him. This proclamation thunders from on high with majesty and authority, which cannot be denied. And it bids defiance to all pretenders the world over. The second thing is that he is Lord of all. And there is nothing done without or apart from him. A person can neither be born, live, or die without the involvement of God. In fact, it is impossible. He declares that he creates light, which is warm, gratifying, and pleasing. He declares that he also creates calamity, which is cold, painful, and unpleasant. Some translations uses the word evil instead of darkness and calamity. So invariably, it raises the question, does that mean that God is the author of evil? He is not the author of evil. Evil in this context means warfare. Evil has three prominent prongs. The first is sin, which at its best is deformity. The second is Satan, and at his best, he is enmity. And the third is war, and at its best, it is misery. When God says he creates darkness, it means as Lord of hosts, evil or darkness becomes his instruments of war to punish evildoers, and in doing so, his justice and power is manifested. If we have any doubt about God's sovereign ways of administering justice, God has asked these two questions. In Amos 3, 7, he asked, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And in Lamentations 3.38, he says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? The obvious answer is yes. Yet sometimes he will mix them like the dawn of the morning and the twilight of the evening or the light of noonday and midnight darkness. He is speaking to Whatever we're facing right this moment, saying, I am the Lord who does all these. God is in the world and has not abandoned it as many people seem to think. We should not mistake natural disasters, murders, rapes, robberies, wars, sickness, and all of the ills of humanity as the absence of God. In fact, 
It is evidence of his presence. For example, when the law was given, sin was revealed when it rode in on the back of the law. Correspondingly, we see evidence of God's holiness when sinful men encounter it. The result is trauma. This brings me to God's holiness and the impact that it has on those who encounter it. I'm reminded of two women. Two women come up to my mind who encountered the holiness of God in a way that caused them to be bursting into song. The Virgin Mary in Luke 1:49, the Virgin Mary who in her refrain after learning that she would bear God's son said this, for the mighty one has done great things for me. In acknowledging God's power as the highest in her situation, she adds this statement, and holy is his name. Her encounter with God's holiness called for her to praise him by song. And then there's Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah wanted a child so that her reproach could be removed. And when she petitioned God, he had mercy and she conceived. In her song, she said this, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Both women acknowledge the undeniable about God. There is none like him in holiness or power. The question that came to my mind is this. How did some of the prophets respond to God's holiness? I will say this. God is a tailor of the highest order. Not everyone wears the same size clothing. And so he tailors our exposure to his holiness, which means we will differ from one another in that respect, as we shall see. First, we can observe what all men have in common. Psalm 103.14 says, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Every man, because of sin, shudders in the presence of a holy God in different ways. We are nothing more than a compound of sin and dirt, which sooner or later will return to the dust. But God separates one pile of dirt and sin from another of the same. Take a prophet of Israel, for example. What set him apart from other men? It was his call. The call was from God and not men. God did not hand out applications for the job of prophet. It was a holy calling, effectual in nature, and it was to be answered in the affirmative. Whether it was a call in that day or today, God does not accept no for an answer. Might I say, that can be very dangerous, as we will see. When God calls you to, to his service, he has already equipped you for it, and it is a call that is to last a lifetime, whether you are in the pulpit or not. As you might recall, Jeremiah tried to refuse his call, but Jeremiah was roundly reminded by God in no uncertain terms that he had been consecrated as a prophet from his mother's womb. 
The same is true for many of God's preachers, teachers, and evangelists today. Just a few short weeks ago, Pastor Barry took us through the book of Jonah, and we learned that Jonah was not a willing prophet to the Ninevites. At the end of that book, God asked Jonah this question. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? No answer was given to that question as far as we know. If ever there was an answer to that question, I would like to think for Jonah's sake that it was answered in this way. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That was how Job answered God when he was questioned. Job sobered up in the presence of God and realized how utterly sinful he was in the presence of the ultimate standard of holiness. Jonah would come to the same reality after he witnessed the awesome attribute of God's holiness on full display. That reality began with Jonah being on the run in a failed attempt to escape God's call on his life. Jonah was disturbed by the attribute of God's mercy. He witnessed the holiness of God in the form of his mercy that was demonstrated to the great city of Nineveh. Furthermore, God exercised his mercy on Jonah's life. And that should have been a revelation to Jonah, how sin and pride filled his heart. If Jonah did realize this, I suspect he was too ashamed to answer the question God asked of him. I am of the belief that Jonah was disturbed by God's holiness. Why? Clearly, he realized that God does not think like a man. Likewise, we have no business treating God in a familiar or cavalier manner. I believe the late R.C. Sproul was one of the great theological minds of this century, and he said this, if we fix our minds on the holiness of God, it might be disturbing. This may have been especially true of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah served as a messenger or as a herald for our galactic king, and Isaiah, like many prophets before and after him, was a martyr. The pages of the Old Testament displayed a considerable number of prophets, but Isaiah stood out in bold relief. To some, he is known as the prophet of prophets, the prince of prophets. And because of the expansive written material that bears his name, he is also known as a major prophet. Isaiah was extraordinary as prophets go because most prophets of the Old Testament were humble in their origin. That is, 
They were either peasants, farmers, or shepherds. But Isaiah was of nobility. He was regarded as a statesman who had direct access to the royal court in his day, and he associated with prince and king alike. Isaiah served during the reign of King Uzziah, who was one of Israel's great kings. King Uzziah started out well as a ruler, but did not end well. He became filled with pride after acquiring great wealth and power, and he entered the temple with an attitude of arrogance and supplanted the rights that God had given only to the priest. Uzziah was struck with leprosy on his forehead and was forced to live in separate quarters. When King Uzziah died, Isaiah went up to the temple to seek comfort in his grief, and it was there that he met the almighty king of glory. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 says this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. In his personal life, Isaiah had it all together. We know people like that, do we not? That is, Isaiah was competent, organized, and mentally well-prepared. If there ever was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. In his generation of peers, he was widely considered as the most righteous man in the country. He was revered as the epitome of virtue. The praise heaped upon him was enough to cause any one of us to read our own press clippings. But may I say, it took only a split second for Isaiah to behold a holy God and sense his self-esteem vaporizing. In the twinkling of an eye, he was stripped naked, exposed by the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. He no longer had it all together. When a rich man knows he is dying, he views his wealth as nothing. That day, Isaiah threw away his press clippings, abandoned his fine reputation. They no longer meant anything to him. There is a lesson here for all of us. As long as we can compare ourselves to other sinners, just as Isaiah may have done, it is easy to sustain a lofty and faulty opinion of our own character, ability, and reputation. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than 
ought, than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, we should not esteem ourselves too highly. Instead, we must think soberly and carefully about ourselves. The instant Isaiah measured himself by the ultimate standard of holiness, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He no longer had it all together. He fell apart, and his sense of integrity had collapsed, folded like a cheap suit. Isaiah was traumatized, disturbed by the holiness of the Lord, Adonai. And why should Isaiah have been unable to stand? He was staring into the face of the Lord, which here Isaiah identifies him by his title, Adonai, and not his name, Lord, which is Yahweh. Here Isaiah sees and declares the one he sees on the throne to be Adonai, which means the supreme sovereign. I couldn't even find a definition for that title. The title Adonai was reserved for God and was given to Jesus in the New Testament. When Christ is called Lord, he is invested, empowered with the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Adonai. Messiah and Christ are the titles reserved for God. But why wasn't Isaiah able to stand in the presence of the one sitting on the throne? Listen to this. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke. Did you notice both the seraphim and Isaiah called God the Lord of hosts? Isaiah could not stand because everything in Adonai's creation, from the inanimate Grand Canyon to Mount Everest, from the wheat grass to the sequoias, the parasite to the buzzard, the ant to the elephant, the sardine to the killer whale, the roadrunner to the javelina, and from the constellation Pleiades to the constellation Orion and everything in between is instantly at his command, an army ready to do his bidding, and that is why he is called Lord of hosts. Jesus is Lord, my friend. The temple shook and Isaiah's body shook along with it. Understand that a prophet was charged to deliver God's message and oftentimes he had to deliver a message of woe on rebellious people. But here we see Isaiah pronouncing a woe, a curse upon his own head. Why? Because he recognized how woefully sinful he was in the presence of true holiness. There were others who experienced God's disruptive holiness. In Mark 4, 39 through 41, Jesus calms the sea. And it says, and he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? 
Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I took the liberty of using the imagination God gave me, and I imagine I was on that boat and saw what they saw. I can hear someone saying right now, well, you know, for you to do that, that's conjecture. That ain't biblical. You can't do that. Nonetheless, that's what I did. And I saw myself as stymied and quietly standing before pure holiness and feeling like I was 12 inches tall. May I say, my response was, he is not one of us. Just what did those fishermen encounter in that boat on that lake? It was the holiness of Adonai who walked from the pages of the Old Testament right on to the pages of the New Testament. What was their fear now that he had brought order to the wind and sea? Well, if they were ever trying to pigeonhole Jesus as they would any other human being, then they failed miserably. When we first meet someone, we try to size them up so that we can categorize them. Do we not? In other words, we seek to define them just as the disciples tried to define Jesus. But they could not find a slot to put him in because he defied everything they thought they knew about men. They saw Jesus command his creation as the Lord of hosts, the creator. Did you note their question? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? My friends, they had no definition for him, yet they could not deny his holiness and his power. I want you to notice that their fear was heightened all the more at the very moment Jesus spoke and brought order to his creation. Why? Having been with him at other times, I suspect at that moment they begin to reassess whether he was actually a threat or peaceful. Now, looking back into the Old Testament, do you suppose Joshua felt much the same way when he encountered the Lord just before crossing the Jordan to take Jericho? Listen to this, Joshua 5, 13 and 14. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Joshua and the fishermen on that boat realized they were at the mercy of the infinite power of Adonai. By this, I submit to you that they were traumatized, bewildered, perplexed, and perhaps stunned by what was unnatural to them because it was supernatural. This we can ascertain. Every one of them were able to comprehend that Adonai stood alone in holiness and power and without equal. Also, we look at Peter in Luke 5, verses 4 through 8. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to, the, to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a, a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. God typically repeats a pattern in human history. God shows up and other people tremble with joy or they tremble in terror. They experience a disruption and it is always a change in basic assumptions which leads us to our rightful posture, which is to acknowledge our nothingness before a holy God. Peter was a proud man, a big man with a big ego, quick-tempered, and quick to make promises he could not fulfill. He was a professional fisherman, and there was nothing that he did not know about fishing. But when Jesus told Peter to throw his net into the deep, at the time, Peter may have been frustrated, exhausted, discouraged, and maybe even a little resentful. Peter knew how and where to fish, but he had caught nothing all night long. Why didn't he? Why didn't he catch anything? Because that was how the Lord of hosts planned it. Do you mean to tell me that God planned on Peter's coming up with empty nets? Yes. Before he laid the foundation of the world. And why not? My friend, he made both the lake and the fish. God's creation is far more likely to obey him before most men will obey. There was no hesitation on the part of the fish to obey Jesus and get into that net. But Peter might have thought twice before obeying. Now, you would think that after such a haul, Peter would pull Jesus aside and say, think of how much money we could make if we formed a partnership. But that scripture, but the scripture says, 
But when Simon, Simon Peter saw that, and what did he see? He saw God exercising his authority over his creation. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter was traumatized, disturbed. He was undone. And like Isaiah, Peter recognized that his puny being was in the presence of the ultimate standard of holiness and power. Most people in this world know just enough about Jesus to stay away from him. Most of them will never darken the door of this building or any other church building, and their reason is the same reason Peter gave to Jesus. They know they are sinners, and coming to Jesus would mean giving up the love they have for sin and darkness. I'm going to start wrapping up with the man who experienced the holiness and power of God a little differently. His name is Noah. I want to read to you this one verse from Genesis chapter 7. Genesis 7-1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Now for 120 years, Noah worked on the ark and preached the gospel, all of which would eventually become a testament of God's holiness and power. During that time, Noah preached the gospel despite the glares, jeering, sneering, rock throwing, and the ignorance of the people of his generation. I believe Noah preached the gospel as God commanded him, and since he knew what was coming, he had a heart for his neighbors. I also believe he preached under compulsion, hoping they would believe and be saved from God's holy wrath. Genesis 7:16 reads, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. That is, the Lord closed the door of the ark after everyone and everything had entered it. After the Lord, that is Adonai, the supreme sovereign, closed the door of the ark, the world was separated from Noah. Some people are inclined to believe that at this point, Noah had nothing to worry about because God was in control. Let's use the imagination God gave us. Noah sat in the ark seven days before the flood came. During that seven-day period, what activities could Noah hear on the outside of that ark while he and his family were inside? Perhaps it was intensified jeering, barking of profanities, catcalls, name-calling, cursing, drunkards singing a dirge, or children laughing and playing around the ark. Jesus says in Matthew 24, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came 
and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Who was taken away? Who will not understand until death sweeps them into an eternity without Christ? The unbelievers. I'm not asking anyone to agree with me when I say this, but I believe when the flood began, it was very possible that Noah could still hear the jeering, shouting of epithets, cursing, rock-throwing, songs of drunkards, and merrymaking fade away, and eventually mutating into the sounds of children crying, women screaming, Men in an uproar, scurrying around in disbelief. People pounding on every side of the ark, begging to be let in. Complete pandemonium. But it was too late. Mercy and grace had run its course for all but eight souls. Listen to the words of God's justice in Zechariah 7.13. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. Those are devastating words. They are just as devastating as depart from me, I never knew you. These were people Noah had a heart for, and he heard them perishing because they had rejected God. Was God now being heartless and cruel? Isn't he supposed to be a God of love? Hear what God says of himself. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. God is neither heartless nor cruel, he is love, and that love comes with a sword of justice which separates the world from his people who long for him and his coming. Genesis 9, 20 through 21 says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Noah got drunk. Most people might disagree with me on this point, but I believe Noah got drunk in response to God's holiness and power. Men are affected by the holiness and power of God. After speaking with God, Moses placed a veil over his face because it was physically glowing. Isaiah fell apart. Jonah tried to go AWOL. And Peter said, leave me alone, Lord. Your presence is too painful. They were all traumatized, disturbed by the unfamiliar, by the supernatural, incomparable holiness of our creator. I don't know about you, but some of the scariest and most volatile periods of my life have come when I knew God was in control. Indeed, it is a comfort to know that, but it does not necessarily eliminate worry, pain, and confusion because we're human. Noah was human. 
I can't help but believe that Noah saw God differently after seeing God's holiness and power on full display. He wiped out the whole world except eight souls and a few animals. I see another effect of God's holiness upon humanity, and we can see it from Genesis to Revelation. He is constantly separating the wheat from the chaff, the believer from the unbeliever, and he will do so until the end of time. 150 days in that ark and Noah did not hear a word from God. But I can imagine he could still hear the sounds of people perishing and it must have weighed heavy on him. I believe Noah got drunk again. I'm not asking anyone to agree with me, but I believe Noah got drunk to escape what he had witnessed. Again, he was no different from any of us. Christian men and unbelievers alike stormed the beaches of Normandy. Some were spread out over the marijuana fields of Korea. Many were dropped into the jungles of Vietnam, others placed on the desert sands of the Middle East to fight wars, and today many of them are trying to escape the terrors of those wars that followed them home. They were traumatized, disturbed by what they saw and heard. Many of them tried to get rid of that pain with whatever they can get their hands onto. Ask my friend Jack Walker and Alan Baxter to show you some of those men and women over at the Warriors Healing Center who are experiencing the aftershocks of war. Was God in control where those wars took place on the beaches, in the fields, in the jungles, and in the sand? Was God even around them? And if so, what was he doing? Yes, he was there. He's everywhere. And in holiness and power, he is punishing evil with his terrible swift sword. And he is busy putting his enemies underneath his feet. While men war against each other in their sinful state, which results in chaos and misery, God wars against sin, and because of his war against it, not one sinner will remain the same, because there is salvation for some and eternal condemnation for the rest. That speaks of his holiness and his power as pilgrims who remain faithful through everything that God allows to pass through his nail-pierced hands into our lives, both blessings and adversity, we will reign with him forever and ever. Hallelujah. In closing, I want to leave you with this. When I look into the lives of Noah, Isaiah, Jonah, Peter, Job, the disciples on the boat, I observed that God's holiness and power was unsettling. It was unnerving. It was alarming. And it was ominous. It was distressing, troubling, and disruptive. But to those two women, Hannah and Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's holiness was reassuring and joyful. 
but they first had to endure a period of darkness. You and I are no exception to this. Where God's holiness and power placed you today, where has it placed you today? Oh, my fellow saints, make no mistake about it. Every one of us is exactly where God wants us to be at this moment. We tend to look around and say things are falling apart. But because God is sovereign and he is in complete control, everything is falling into place according to his plan, according to his will. And everything that happened, that is happening and will happen, he is ordained to come to pass. Whatever we experience or any questions we have regarding God's holiness, power, and the effects of it on our own life, God says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55. God's greatest display of his holiness, power, humility, love, Mercy, grace, and justice is found in these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3:16. May I say, I have never read anywhere in all of the Bible where God has asked anyone if they wanted to be saved. I have read where he commands it. Acts 17:30 God says therefore having overlooking the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And in Isaiah 45:22 he says it more forcefully. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. My friend, if you have not come to Christ to be saved from the penalty of your sin and to be saved from the coming wrath of God, without any doubt, it is you that he is commanding to come and be saved today. He has not promised that you will finish out this day or even wake up tomorrow morning. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It doesn't say tomorrow. It doesn't say the next day. May God richly bless you.